Hello and welcome to Genderfuck, the sexual health and well-being podcast run by trans people and for trans people. I'm your host, Dan Griffiths. My pronouns are he, him. And I'm Oliver Ellis. My pronouns are he, him. So should we just get into some like little news stuff? Because I realized in our last episode, we didn't do that because we just had a guest. So we jumped like straight into everything. Yeah, let's go for it. So I finally have my PhD funding. So I can say definite (laughs) that I'll be doing a PhD because the past few months has been like, I've got my place, but I don't know if anyone's going to pay me to do (laughs) it. So I'll be able to start my uh, PhD about kind of like the sexual satisfaction and functioning of trans and non-binary people in October, which is very fun. Yeah, that's super exciting. Congrats, congrats. Yeah, I'm just excited to be able to do something again because I've been (laughs) unemployed all year and it's just been like kind of me just faffing about and like doing random shit like the podcast. Like, (laughs) Yeah, good to have a long-term goal like that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, we also wanted to remind everyone that we have started a blog. At the moment, it's just me that's been writing some articles. I've done one about sex toys, like kind of debunking the myths, talking about like different materials that are good or bad, um, like the different kinds of sex toys you can get. Um, I also did another one where it's kind of like a really deep dive into kind of genital anatomy. Um, and then last week I wrote one about like going to a kink event for the first time. Um, so that's genderfuck.blog or it's genderfuckpodcast.wordpress.com. Like either of those uh, URLs will take you to the same place. And we're also like, we'd be super interested in kind of having other like trans writers and stuff doing some articles if there was like any topics that they were really interested in like writing about. Like unfortunately right now that would be unpaid, but I'm really hoping like once I've sorted out like all my furniture and like all the expensive things that come with like moving to a new place, um, I'll be able to pay people like 30 or 50 quid or something for an article so like i can actually like pay people for the work they're doing so hopefully yeah yeah. (laughs) because yeah on that note um we've also opened like a coffee account so that people can donate and support our work um as we've said like we kind of self-fund this so like all the sort of subscription costs and like equipment and stuff um we just sort of use our own money which is you know fine we're okay doing that at the moment but um, we would really appreciate your support if you can just spare a few pounds, a few dollars, anything like that. Uh, we'd be very thankful. Mm-hmm. And we'll also will we will be skipping next week's episode because Oliver's family are visiting. Yeah, I've got a busy few weeks with that, which is quite exciting. But yeah, I won't really have time for too much podcast stuff. Um, but we'll be back kind of mid to late May, I think. Um, so yeah, keep an eye out for that. Yeah. Okay. Shall we get started with this monster of a topic that I decided <laughs> to do and I gave myself a gigantic headache on Friday. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, it's quite a complex topic, but I think hopefully we can... Um, sort of explain it in a fairly easy to understand way, um, if that's possible. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. Um, We haven't even said what the topic is today, but we're talking about uh, the neuroscience around kind of sexual like arousal and pleasure and like all of that good stuff. So kind of Mm -hmm. what happens in your brain. Um, but we thought we should do quite a few disclaimers <laughs> before. Um, I started writing them and I kept thinking of more things that I needed to like, yeah. disclaim. Um, so firstly, I want to say that like a lot of like research around kind of like biological stuff that goes on in the brain is still kind of emerging. We don't really know what a lot of like areas of the brain do in a lot of detail. There's a lot of kind of like ideas, but it's not very concrete because it's really hard to study this kind of a thing. Um, so maybe don't take everything we say as a like, complete fact. It's kind of just where the research is right now. And also like a lot of neuroscience experiments are conducted on animals rather than humans. And obviously there's that kind of thing where it's like animals don't have 
the same kind of cultural or like social things mm. that we do. So some things might be a bit different. Um, and also many brain imaging studies are done on individuals who are being monitored while watching kind of pornography. Um, and this can't really adequately reflect the kind of brain processes processes that happen during kind of like a real life kind of like paired or group or whatever like sexual experience because there's kind of more things going on like social stuff um and also a lot of the research is really really cishet so kind of when studies say like men or women usually like 99 percent of the time they're talking about cis men and women so if we say men or women just kind of assume that's what we mean and then while we're mainly kind of focusing on the neuroscience of this episode, there are kind of other social, emotional, kind of cultural things that influence arousal as well. And then we've got like this little quote that says, um, sexual behavior in humans should be conceived as a pleasure-seeking pulse that can be readily controlled in a context-appropriate way under the influence of cultural factors such as morals and ethics, which I think is a really important thing to kind of highlight because it's like, I don't want it to come across that like, your brain is doing all these things and you can't do anything to control it. And you're just yeah. like, you know, cause it's like, you can <laughs> control. Yeah, exactly. Brain. Yeah. I like the sort of like readily controlled in a context appropriate way. Um, part of that quote, just because yeah, obviously we'll be going through the neuroscience and kind of presenting it as, you know, this is what happens, but obviously there is a lot more to that. And like, you know, you can generally choose like, Oh wait, actually I'm not going to do this right now. Like you can stop those things mm -hmm. from happening in your brain that we'll talk about, but um, yeah, we'll go through it in the episode. <laughs> yeah. It's not like you're stuck on a train that's going like a million miles per hour and you can't stop it at all. It's like you're mm -hmm. on a bike and you can like hit the brakes, you know? <laughs> Um, yeah. So, yeah. So I was going to go into a really sort of quick history just because we did mention that, um, it's still kind of an emerging field, like neuroscience in general is quite a new science. Um, and the beginning of like sex research is generally attributed to like Kinsey in the forties. Um, and then coming into the fifties, there's Masters and Johnson, who I think we've talked about before because mm -hmm. they did the whole like four stage sexual response cycle. Um, and they did really influential work in the fifties, like actually paying volunteers who were mostly sex workers, um, to like have sex or masturbate while hooked up to these wires and things to measure their physiological responses, um, which was like a, a pretty new thing at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in the sixties, they're kind of became uh, more tools de developed to measure like erections and sort of arousal. Um, and these methods are still used today, obviously like a bit more high tech versions of them, um, as well as other things, so, sort of brain scans and imaging, um, mm -hmm. as well as just kind of asking people about their their sexual arousal. Um, there's lots of different ways to, to measure at this point, but um, it's really been the past sort of, I guess, 80 or so years that it's been kind of something that people have even been thinking about measuring scientifically. Yeah. So it's like, there's a lot of stuff where it's really hard to kind of like measure it really well. That was like mm -hmm. one of my main problems when I was like talking to one of the lecturers in my department about kind of like my proposal for my PhD. And then he was like, so the only like truly objective way to measure like some of these stuff that you want to do is to like hook people up to these machines and stuff. And I was like, I yeah. don't know how many people are going to want to do that though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It does seem like a quite sort of personal invasive yeah. sort of way to do it. <laughs> So I was like, oh shit, okay, I guess I need to, that's like my third study, that's in like two years, so I don't really need to think mm -hmm. about it right now. Yeah, but... it is obviously, it's really cool though, like the science behind it, like it is very interesting. Mm, definitely. Um, so we're going to start off with just kind of like the brain in general, before we get into like the little gunky bits inside of it that do different things. 
Um, but basically, if you really think about it, the brain is our biggest sex organ. Like it's the control center for everything. It's um, like even if someone is kind of like touching you or they're like naked in front of you or like something like that, if you don't interpret that as arousing, then you're really unlikely to kind of have any kind of a sexual response. Um, and also like you're able to turn yourself on and off kind of without sensory input so like if you're having like a fantasy about something that's really hot then like that's there's nothing touching you there's no like information going in that's just your brain being like damn that's kind of yeah. cool <laughs> very powerful yeah um and like the level of control and like the way that people respond to sexual stimuli kind of varies from person to person uh emotional states like depression or like happiness or anger whatever they might really affect some people in a sexual way more than others so someone if they're really sad they just can't get turned on at all but there are some people where they could be sad but they they're still just like yeah i'll fuck i don't i'll do it you know Mm -hmm. um and then also some people might be more like sensitive to kind of noise outside or something like that and they get like it's so distracting um that they just can't get turned on but other people they might just generally just not care um and also like neuroscience has found that people's brains like some people's brains are more sensitive to sexual cues than others like some people have very low threshold for sexual arousal so it doesn't take them very like very much to get interested in sex but some people might need quite a lot of stimulation and stuff to get anywhere near like that kind of level of interest i think that's an interesting point to make the the kind of different thresholds because i think sometimes mm. people people think of it as like their fault if they don't get turned on as easily or if they get turned on too easily and mm-hmm. it's like well no it, it is just kind of like it's happening in your brain it's not really something that you necessarily have like that much control over yeah and i think sometimes people kind of pathologize that and like because mm. obviously if it's like really distressing to someone then sure yeah, of like, course yeah, there's extremes on either side. Yeah, but it, there's nothing really that wrong with, like, needing a little bit extra or, like, not needing as much to get turned mm-hmm. on as long as, like, obviously no one's getting hurt, whatever. You're not, like, being distressed by it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, like, one of those things where people kind of think there's one way that you have to be, like, interested in sex or whatever. And then if someone is outside of that in a pretty normal way, then they kind of, like, jump to pathologize it. I guess because of like their own kind of like sex negative views or whatever. Um, so it's like, it's really important to recognize it's just like some people's brains are just wide in a different way. And like, there's most likely nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, unless it's distressing someone, you know. Um, and then so gentle stimulation can also kind of signal multiple like sensory qualities. So that could be kind of like touch or pressure or like temperature and like kind of somatosensory things like that. Um, and these kind of signals get sent via multiple pathways to reach the brainstem, the mid midbrain, and the kind of somatosensory or visceral thalamus. So that's kind of the primary function of the thalamus is to relay motor and sensory signals to the cerebral cortex. We'll explain what most of these things are like a bit later. <laughs> yeah. um, but I had a really hard time trying to figure out how I wanted to kind of divide this episode up because a lot of these like processes are really interconnected and it's really hard to kind of have a very like point a to b to c kind of like pathway thing because everything is kind of turned on in like different capacities and stuff it's really hard um (laughs) so i found like this blog that i've linked below but they basically they 
separated the kind of parts and functions into kind of cognitive, emotional, motivational, and physiological components. And I thought that was like the easiest way to kind of go about it because it made the most sense to me. Um, So hopefully it makes sense to everyone else that's listening. (laughs) I'm sure it'll be good. So we're going to start off by talking a little bit about the cognitive component. Um, So cognition is kind of involved in perceiving sexual stimuli and then judging whether or not that's sexually arousing. Um, And if it is deemed arousing to the brain, then your focus is diverted towards it. Um, And if it isn't, then it's avoided. So this is kind of what we talked about earlier about like your brain is that making that decision. Even if you see like a naked person, that's not necessarily going to be automatically arousing for you. So, um, So there's some different structures within this. So the ventromedial prefrontal cortex connects to like the limbic system, the reward system, emotional systems, um, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the different sections. So the ventromedial prefrontal cortex is highly connected to the five main senses, those being sight, touch, smell, hearing, and taste. So it's likely that hearing something sexual like audio porn would elicit a sort of similar response to, for example, someone touching you um, in a part of your body that's sort of connected to your arousal. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of the limbic system, that's like an area that's deep in the brain um, and it includes the hypothalamus, which controls autonomic processes and sexual responses. So these are things that like you don't necessarily control like consciously, like sort of heartbeats and things that are happening, you know, that you're not really thinking about, Mm -hmm. Um, as well as the hippocampus, which sits in learning and memory. Yeah. Um, Um, But all of these... Oh, Wait, sorry. sorry. Um, it also includes the amygdala as well, but I took that bit out of this section because that's in like the emotional context. So I don't want anyone mm-hmm. who's like listening to this being like, you missed out a structure. Because I'm like, <laughs> it's coming. Yeah. It's coming. Don't worry. But I just wanted to point that out because I realized I didn't actually like put that in our notes. Yeah. And I think like it's good to note that like this isn't like a sort of comprehensive, like these are all the different parts of the brain. Like there are yeah. so many parts of the brain. Like oh, we're just don't. kind of highlighting main ones. I found a... um paper that had like a really big summary of like all the different parts of the brain and i wrote Mm. everything down in a list and i had like 20 different structures and i was like i'm not doing just (laughs) listing everything and like listing what they do so we're just doing like the main structures because we Mm. are a podcast of two people who aren't neuroscientists so i don't want to get it wrong um yeah yeah yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, so in terms of all the sort of different things within the limbic structure, the hypothalamus um, appears to be one of the most important for kind of sexual functioning. Um, so they found that the destruction or chemical inactivation of certain portions of the hypothalamus can result in a significant decrease in sexual behavior, um, whereas electrical stimulation to the same area generally increases this behavior. Um, so as we'll talk about later, the hypothalamus is like quite important in terms of sexual functioning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to talk about the emotional component. Um, so in psychology, the kind of term emotion is a bit different to kind of what we would say in like lay terms, like talking to your friends. Um, but it usually just refers to specific uh, responses to internal or an external event rather than just kind of a synonym for feelings. Um, so as I said earlier, so the amygdala is a part of the limbic system and it's a really important part of the kind of emotional response, especially when it comes to fear. Um, so along with the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, it evaluates the emotional context of a, of a sexual situation and diverts attention kind of towards or away a certain stimulus. So the amygdala and kind of motivational areas, which we'll be, we'll be talking about in the next section, work together to guide sexual behavior. But Basically, if the emotional context of a situation is deemed to be safe, so like the kind of person that you're with, the environment that you're with, like if someone is being really affectionate and like nice to you and it's a nice kind of like clean and quiet area where you don't feel like you're going to get disturbed or whatever, 
then sexual arousal might be activated um, through like the amygdala, but other fact like emotional factors and like other things like that um, might change this. So it's not like a is this safe? Yes. Okay. Everything is fine, and we will be mm-hmm. having sex now because uh, uh, people could have kind of like different things that could impact if they will or will not have sex. Um, yeah. But also another interesting part is the amygdala is deactivated during orgasm because it's very unlikely that you really need to kind of monitor for safety at this point. Like you kind of just like letting everything go at that point. Um, and like an interesting thing that I found was basically with this syndrome called Culver Boosie. I don't want to, <laughs> sounds like pussy. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, syndrome. I don't know how you say that. I'm so sorry. Um, but that's basically damage to both, uh, anterior temporal lobes where the amygdala is found. Um, similar deactivation of the amygdala is found. So symptoms often kind of include like indiscriminate or kind of inappropriate sexual behavior so kind of not assessing the danger of this which could obviously have quite bad kind of repercussions for the person um kind of put them in like dangerous situations Mm -hmm. so that's kind of i guess like showing how not having that fear is sometimes not very beneficial but obviously also having too much fear can also be a bit unbeneficial as well um Mm -hmm. it's kind of like whenever you hear people talking about how anxiety is like physiologically like or like psychology, whatever, we need anxiety to some degree. But if we yeah, have exactly. too much or too little of it, then that's when things tend to go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's like all of those things of like, you know, obviously fear in, in high doses isn't very good. But, you know, fear is the reason why, like, if you see a bear, you're a, yeah. you're afraid and you're afraid for a reason, you know? Yeah, it's you're like not going to like walk off a Scary things should be scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Um, so involved with the motivation component that Oliver will be talking about, like one for function of emotion is to kind of motivate behavior so that could be like i don't know if you're feeling really good then you're more likely to kind of do more things that make you feel really good you know yeah so like our brain kind of looks to those emotions to kind of decide what behaviors to take Mm -hmm. um whether that being like something that you decide to do or something that your kind of brain and body decides to do. Mm -hmm. So um, motivation in psychology refers to like the specific cause of any action. Um, And lots of early motivational psychology was based around um, ideas of of, like drives, instincts, like urges, you know, this kind of idea that we're sort of programmed to meet our needs um, and to experience like pleasure and avoid pain. Mm -hmm. I think that's called like the hedonistic principle. Mm -hmm. And so reproduction is kind of one of those biological needs that you see in like Maslow's hierarchy. Um, Obviously reproduction is very much based in like evolutionary psychology, which, um, you know, definitely influences our sex lives. But obviously humans have sex for pleasure, not just reproduction. Um, But kind of the way that a lot of psychologists talk about this kind of stuff is based in that kind of reproductive drive. But then that also like doesn't explain all the people who like physically can't have children and then still yeah want to have sex, exactly you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah totally a lot of the stuff is a bit yeah it's quite like reductionist I guess of being like yeah you just want to have sex for baby and I'm like I can't actually do that so that doesn't explain <laughs> me very well yeah for sure um yeah a lot like a lot of these other disclaimers we spoke about there's <laughs> you know it doesn't necessarily encapsulate like what sex is for humans um it is kind of seeing it in that more kind of i don't know almost like animalistic sense of like mm-hmm. we must reproduce to save our species but that's not necessarily how it works like in the modern day in real life but yeah. <laughs> anyway and i think 
um, sometimes that kind of thinking of everything being so biological and it all just being a drive, it kind of deflects blame from people who do kind of like sex-based crimes and stuff like that, where it was just mm-hmm. like, oh, I couldn't control myself, it was my body. Yeah. When obviously sex is, it involves kind of the emotional, the social, the obviously mm-hmm. like the physiological stuff as well. But it's a combination of like all of these different factors. So it's like mm. being so reductionist that it is just purely like evolutionary. Like I hear a lot of like those kind of um, alpha bro podcast oh, things, God, yeah. kind of like talking <laughs> about sex and relationships in that kind of a way where they're just like, oh, it's just science, bro. And I'm like, that's not what the science of sex is saying. No. <laughs> like you're just using it to kind of deflect your own shitty behavior. So I think that's another thing that's really important to kind of touch on is that like your brain can motivate you to do things, but you also have the capacity to stop those urges usually. Um, So yeah, that's just like another dangerous bit of kind of like a lot of like evolutionary or like biological like psychology Mm. stuff that some people would just get really, really wrong, which I hate. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's definitely like this is the stuff that is kind of happening subconsciously to your brain to your body your hormones but there is that conscious aspect of it that you're kind of thinking and deciding about these things so it's definitely important to keep that in mind we don't have a prefrontal cortex for nothing like that's (laughs) like the prefrontal cortex is the thing that like helps you stop doing stupid shit basically (laughs) that's like the most yeah i don't know like childish way of explaining the prefrontal cortex but like you know (laughs) what i mean yeah well it's like that higher level kind of decision making you know all of that kind of stuff i love how i'm the one doing a phd and i can't say everything scientific (laughs) (laughs) i mean (laughs) i literally had to get out i got out my um undergraduate psychology textbook which i don't even know why i still have but i did get it out to do research for this so um you know that was good (laughs) felt like i was back in uni um (laughs) but yeah so back to the kind of motivational component um the basic wiring basically is that um glands secrete hormones which then travel through the body through the blood into the brain and stimulate sexual desire um so there's one called just a second let's get those dehydroepic Androsterone, which is DHEA. It's such a long word. Yeah. Um, and it's involved in like the initial onset of sexual desire. Um, so we begin producing it around age six, but it's very slow acting. Um, and some people think that this is why most people experience initial sexual interest kind of around age 10. Mm-hmm. Not that like 10 year olds are like wanting to go out and have sex, but that kind of like exploring their own bodies and mm-hmm. what feels good and things like that happens quite young. Mm-hmm. Um, and so DHEA plus kind of influxes of testosterone and estrogen are also responsible for puberty which also obviously like lots of different changes in kind of sexual feelings and stuff are happening then mm-hmm. um, and motivation is highly linked um, to dopamine dependent limbic system and includes structures like the thalamus so the thalamus is the kind of first step so it relays motor and sensory signals to the cerebral cortex which is known for that kind of higher order higher order mental stuff like organization decision making personality um, and that cerebral cortex then processes that sensory information and as we talked about earlier the amygdala plays a key role in like producing a emotions, especially fear, um, but these emotions kind of motivate action and arousal. So the amygdala makes these appraisals of situations, a decision which then tells our body what to do, corresponding with the emotion that it's decided on. So the information goes from the thalamus to the amygdala, and then that is kind of said to be the fast pathway because the amygdala works really quickly, um, which is why you can kind of experience an emotion before you actually actually realize
realizing why you're experiencing that mm. emotion, which is quite interesting. Yeah. Um, the cortex is kind of the slower pathway. So the anterior cingulate cortex, the ACC, um, it does a lot. It's involved in emotions, impulse control, decision making, pleasure, pain, a lot of these kind of complex things, as well as some autonomic regulation. So it's important for sex because the activation is correlated with like positive effective states such as romantic love, sexual arousal, sexual drive. So a lot of these things are happening kind of all at once to make that sexual arousal happen. Mm -hmm. um, another part of the cortex is the parietal cortex. So this is responsible for sensory perception and integration. It's right next to the, somato the somatosensory lobe, um, which also plays a part in kind of understanding that genital stimulation, something that kind of gets those information from all the senses and kind of puts it where it needs to go. Mm -hmm. And then the hypothalamus, again, as we spoke about before, is what actually like releases the hormones to go into your body, which then makes all the other little changes that happen. So basically with all of those different brain structures, what happens is you see or hear or experience something sexy. These sensory stimuli are picked up by thalamus, which then sends them over to the amygdala, which like defines the emotions. Um, and then your cortex works on defining them as well, just a little bit slower. That emotion of, you know, being turned on then functions as the motivation for what your body responds with. So the hypothalamus is sending out these hormones, which make you feel sexual desire and like actually produce the physiological reactions. So like lubrication or an erection or something like that. There's also like neurotransmitters and modulators that are involved as well. So dopamine and serotonin are the ones that get mentioned quite a bit and um, that people have probably heard of. Um, so dopamine enhances like sexual arousal and increases the odds of sexual behavior. Um, and it's heavily involved in motivation. So like to go towards or do something pleasurable and like avoid something negative. Um, and one study that's found that women who have taken drugs that reduce dopamine levels um, often report difficulties reaching orgasm. Uh, and then in contrast, women who have taken drugs that increase dopamine levels um, actually report more sexual arousal and greater ability to reach orgasm. So it's kind of, you see how even things like medication that are for something completely different actually um, affect people's like sexual desire and arousal quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also like important to say that like dopamine is what's involved in kind of whenever we're doing something that's like pleasurable so that's like if you eat like a really good meal or something your brain's like hell yeah and like re like releases dopamine um and i really want to do an episode about kind of neurodivergence like autism like adhd um and kind of sex and kink and stuff like that basically like people with adhd have like a reduced level of dopamine so there's like more kind of pleasure seeking things to kind of bring that level of dopamine up in the brain so dopamine has like a really big like impact on kind of general brain functioning for a lot of people um so yeah i think it's very interesting it's a very interesting neurotransmitter yeah totally and i think what people will probably know about dopamine if you've heard anything is that it's called like the happy hormone so like dopamine mm -hmm. results in that sort of feeling of happiness um it's part of like the brain's reward system so like like you said you know if you eat something tasty or if you have sex you're gonna feel that little bit of happiness because it's like your brain is rewarding you for doing something that makes it feel good um which mm -hmm. again is quite interesting um yeah the other one is serotonin um and that sort of has effects that are opposite to dopamine, so it's more inhibitory. Um, the presence of serotonin tends to decrease sexual arousal and inhibit orgasm. So people on SSRIs, which are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, um, tend to report difficulty in becoming sexually aroused or even orgasming. Um, so this might be good for people who feel like they orgasm too quickly, but other people find that can be um, a bit of a deterrent to sex because they don't really feel like they're able to, to get as aroused or sort of orgasm. Mm -hmm. So there are other neurotransmitters and modulators involved as well, like 
like norepinephrine or acetylcholine. Um, but those are the two kind of main ones that that get talked about a lot. Um, and so all these these neurotransmitters and these different areas of the brain are basically directing behavior towards sexual goals. So like sexual urges, desires, and those feelings of reward. Um, it takes the motivation aspect of it, takes those emotions and then motivates you to, you know, kind of move towards these these rewarding things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the final kind of component is the physiological component. So that's kind of like how you feel in your body. Um, so obviously parts of sex, including kind of increased heart rate, blood pressure, genital responses, and hormonal changes that Oliver talked about earlier are controlled by the brain. Um, and then kind of respiration pressure, muscle tension continue to increase throughout the kind of sexual experience. Um, also like the clitoris becomes highly sensitive in people with like vulvas and stuff. Um, and like the Bartholian glands, uh, within the vulva also produce further lubrication, which is like all controlled by the brain, like telling all these things to happen. Um, so like when you're kind of kissing, touching, doing other like sexual activities, the peripheral nervous system. So that's kind of the nerves that extend out from the brain and the spinal cord. So the ones that go into your arm and into your skin and into your legs and stuff like that. That's like the peripheral one. They send signals to the brain and then the hypothalamus responds to arousal by signaling to release testosterone, no matter the sex of the person. So testosterone is like really important in um, kind of the sexual response. So that's why a lot of people where they, if they have really low testosterone levels, they tend to report kind of feeling like they can't really get aroused or they really struggle with like orgasm and stuff. And then also arousal causes an output of nitrogen oxide and noradrenaline and these substances increase blood to our genitalia to initiate erection, lubrication and the enlargement of labia. So that's basically just kind of pumping blood into the kind of spongy tissues, like the spongy erectile tissues. So you actually get hard. Yeah. So I think the the last big component to this is the orgasm because kind of different things are happening during that than all the other kind of stages of arousal. So there's four different nerve systems that connect the genitals to the brain, which with a stimulation surge shoot like these excitatory signals to the brain upon reaching orgasm. So regions all over the brain appear to light up where the ventromedial prefrontal cortex and amygdala are shut down which is what you mentioned earlier. These deactivations are considered to constitute the temporary sexual disinhibition required for an orgasm to actually take place. So this is sort of, you know, robbing us of the voice of reason that controls our behaviors and critical thinking. Um, Obviously, like, it doesn't, you know, really sort of rob us of anything, but it's that kind of idea that orgasm is like a a kind of all-encompassing thing. It's like a full body sensation. It kind of, you know, yeah, it's like a letting over. go. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's like letting go. Like you're not thinking about anything or not like analyzing anything at that mm-hmm. moment. You're just kind of like, you know, yeah, letting go. I guess. Like, yeah, no, totally. Well yeah, and so there's these like neurochemicals it's like a neurochemical buzz kind of during and after orgasm which makes you feel this way so there's oxytocin which people will probably have heard of as well kind of related to bonding like cuddling that feeling of connectedness sort of warm and fuzzy feelings um as mm-hmm. well as like prolactin which kind of is what if you ever feel drowsy after sex it'll be because of that um as well as endorphins so it's this like sort of intense high and then a kind of like nice warm drowsy sort of feeling afterwards um And as we've talked about before, there is this idea of like a human sexual response cycle um, of Masters and Johnson, this kind of idea that there is excitement, then plateau, then orgasm, and then the resolution, which contains sort of refractory periods and things. And that's kind of a little bit of what we talked about today is that, you know, the, the emotion and motivational and cognitive side are all associated with that 
you know, excitement and plateau kind of phases, whereas obviously the orgasm is a bit different. But we do know that like sex is often more complicated than this and you might experience the stages in different ways. So it might not be as linear. It might not necessarily involve an orgasm. Um, and it obviously doesn't really take into account those social, cultural, psychological factors. So yeah, that was basically just based on genital responses rather than brains. Because again, this was like, this is a while ago. This is like in the 50s. They weren't really doing as much kind of complicated brain scans or anything like that. Um, but it is good to kind of note that there's different things happening at different parts of sex, but that they don't have to all happen in a certain, you know, in, in a certain order necessarily. Yeah, for sure. I just think like the brain side of it, it's like, it's so complicated. Like mm -hmm. I was trying to read all these like papers on like Google Scholar and shit, and I just couldn't understand half <laughs> of it because one, I've been out of school for about almost a year and I don't do much like academic reading at the moment. So it's hard to get my brain like back into that mode. Mm -hmm. And also too, I never did like, I did like a couple neuroscience classes, but they weren't this complicated i don't think i don't know yeah it's just like kind of learning what like different parts of the brain do instead of kind of learning like explain like a whole thing as complicated as sex mm -hmm. through like a neuroscience lens and it's really hard because there's so many different things that go on at like the same time and, yeah like, it's it's very complicated. It is. And we've, so we'll link, you know, different articles and stuff that we've used that might be helpful if you are interested in learning more about this, or if you have a background in neuroscience and you actually sort of have an interest and can understand all these different papers, then that <laughs> is great. Um, but yeah, I think our goal was just to kind of explain the the basics of what's happening and kind of where it's happening in your brain, because it is, it is interesting. I feel like this isn't really stuff that you necessarily get taught in like a, you know, mm -hmm. in school or in like a psych class even. I mean, I like, yeah, I only took a couple sort of neuroscience classes in my degree uh, but i don't think we ever really talked about sex um obviously but we were always talking about like visual perception and like sound perception mm -hmm. and maybe like a little bit about emotions and yeah. like um, and i feel like they do like you hear about the kind of reward system and like the the drives and things but Again, I think a lot of it either has to do with animals or different kind of survival instincts. Mm -hmm. So like, I don't know, I remember hearing about all these different sort of, you know, instincts like the drive for food or the drive for, you know, water or, you know, all these different things. But um, pleasure is a lot like some of those other things. Like we mentioned, you know, eating something tasty, sometimes you get that similar kind of brain chemical stuff that happens like if you're having sex like if you're doing something pleasurable which is which is interesting yeah but then there's also as i said earlier the, there's a kind of um critique i guess in psychology about kind of calling sex a drive because yeah. um obviously like you have like a drive to eat or sleep because you'll physically like die if you mm -hmm. don't do it yeah um and there's quite a few psychologists saying that we shouldn't really be labeling it has a drive also because of the stuff I said earlier where people kind of use it as an excuse to kind of get out of like a get out of jail card by being like my brain made me do it mm. if they commit like sexual assault or something because wow. uh, like obviously there is like the kind of evolutionary side of it where it's like you want to have sex to kind of reproduce pass your genes on and stuff like that but I just think I don't know I'm very critical of <laughs> evolutionary psychology yeah <laughs> like, for sure I'm, I'm not a fan of it because like low-key think it's quite pseudoscientific so <laughs> yeah well that's the thing tea. it's like yeah it's, it's like <laughs> yeah no totally it, there's so much of it that like like obviously there's a little bit of an effect like we have evolved but it's like humans brains are so much more than that at the moment and like with all mm. the different social stuff happening like it's just you can't really take evolutionary psych and have it explain everything because it, it does 
not do that at all. It's like nowhere near encapsulating the sort of range of human experiences at all. Yeah, especially I think the thing that always like bugs me about it personally is people, because if you're not very well versed in psychology or like anything like that, or like research methodology, you might think, oh, evolutionary psychology, that's really scientific. Like you have that, that has to be correct. So people cite all these things, but realistically we can't test what we did back then yeah. to survive like thousands of years ago, whatever. So a lot of it is purely just like speculation. Yeah, for um, sure. So that's why I kind of get a bit annoyed with it <laughs> where people like try to use it being like, oh, like men behave this way because evolution or women behave this way because yeah. evolution. But like, <laughs> social shit too bestie like yeah, what do oh you gosh. mean <laughs> um yeah totally that is definitely yeah. a really frustrating one like the gender differences and it's like what about the like hundreds of years of like social like literally. yeah social norms and like <laughs> pressure and yeah plus it's like you can literally look at um i remember in my a levels we did a module about gender and we looked at different cultures where they have like wildly different gender roles to mm. what we would have in like the uk and I was like, okay, but how would evolutionary psychology, like, explain that? Though? Yeah, no, exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's just, like, that's obviously, like, a social thing of, like, they've been raised to behave this way depending on their gender Yeah, in a way that's different to where how we would. So it's just, you know, this is just my own little rant because this episode's already kind of short, so we might as well just, like, talk about whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, totally. But, yeah, I think, like, I was looking at a phd thing like because i did in the end i did my own proposal like i did everything myself but i was looking at one that was like already funded you just had to kind of like apply for it and do an interview and stuff and they would decide if they wanted you or not um and it was with someone that i am aware of like he came to our university a couple times did some talks like i went to like one or two of them um and then i was talking to my supervisor being like oh i'm kind of interested in this because it was like something to do with transness mm -hmm. and then she was like bestie he is like a big evolutionary psychologist and Ooh. i don't think you would get along with him for three years and i was like you know what you're right yeah oh, <laughs> I, was wow. like, I don't want to i don't want to have to argue with someone for three years because i think like a lot of their discipline is kind of bullshit yeah. <laughs> so. yeah that probably would not have been the best fit yeah yeah i'd be like if i went with someone who was like super like psychoanalytic like freud shit like mm -hmm. that worst nightmare that yeah. sounds like absolute hell to me yeah i ended up just taking as many like social psych credits as i possibly could and like sticking <laughs> in that region of it <laughs> yeah exactly like i think like because i did health psychology as my master's mm -hmm. and most of that is literally just like social stuff it's like trying to get people to like uptake a certain like healthy behavior or like do a behavioral change thing or like kind of deterring people from doing stuff like smoking cigarettes or whatever and like a lot of that is like really social and it's like I think it's just really funny because my entire time throughout university, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm that interested in like social psychology. <laughs> and then like halfway through my master's, I was like, shit, wait, I'm actually really interested in social psychology. I don't know why I always said that. That's what I Because I think I always wanted to go down like a biological route. And then I was just there, like, this shit sucks. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is so hard. <laughs> yeah. It. It's super hard. And like, you know, obviously yeah. good, good for someone to do it, but. You know, I think like with so I much can't. psychology stuff, yeah, I can't do either, but like so, so much stuff about humans in general, it's like, obviously it's important to understand the physiological, biological stuff, but like you can't talk about 
behavior or anything like that without talking about social stuff just because like we mm-hmm. it's very like we live in a society but like yeah <laughs> we do like <laughs> we say that every episode i know we point. really do live in a society but like yeah exactly where it's like i feel like every time i wrote an essay about something where they would be like write about like the biological impact of this and i'd have to always like in the conclusion be like this is one part of explaining the yeah. behavior we need to use a diathesis stress model, so including <laughs> both sides. Kind of a thing where just like every, if you ever do psychology, like whoever's listening, like that's just what it is at the end of the day. Yeah. Psychology is a whole lot of maybe. You always have to write your sentences like, this may impact this. It's yeah. Yeah. So and then ended up with like, there's, <laughs> there's a million other things that could also be happening. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, literally. It's like how um my planned third project like study in my PhD like I don't know if we're gonna do it because like one of my research like one of my lecturers rather he was like I think basically like because I wanted to make a model he was like I think most people do that 20 years into their degree not at the end of their PhD best not no he said that like 20 years into their like career yeah um not at the end of their PhD and I was like oh okay that might be a bit too hard then yeah (laughs) But like I wanted to do um, like a big model where I did like a questionnaire where I send out to like hundreds of trans people, hopefully, and then like a bunch of different factors I find throughout my previous two studies that could impact sex and like putting it through like a modeling software and stuff. Yeah. The list that I've already got and I haven't even started it, like the list that I made for like my proposal was already so fucking long <laughs> of like the things that can impact like sexual satisfaction and functioning and i was like god damn it. yeah that sounds <laughs> so like, cool though we should do it i know well my, my supervisor said that she thinks i could do it okay so, well that's a good sign maybe <laughs> you get some time to think actually. about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah like we'd hopefully be starting that next year um kind of doing like the second and the third studies kind of at the same time so i can like do data collection for the third study while i'm like interviewing people for Mm. the second one yeah kind of a thing if that makes sense um but phd shit is so complicated like i keep forgetting that i actually have to like do it (laughs) (laughs) just because i've been like so excited about like um i'm getting like a flat like it's insane but like my mom said that she was gonna like buy a flat and then just like sell it when i'm done wow because she was like i don't want you to give like 24k to like some shitty landlord and she was like i might as well like do this and like i can make a profit and use that for my future house Um, yeah i was like i didn't know we had this kind of money (laughs) i was like what the hell yeah that's nice So i'm like like really fortunate with that um so that will give me like a lot more money each year so i keep just being like oh i can buy all this nice furniture and i can get a cat and <laughs> i can go traveling and i can do all these things and i keep forgetting that like i'm actually gonna have to like do a phd <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm not just getting paid 16k just to like sit around with a cat yeah that so, would be the ideal yeah. job but unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> Like, I wish, I wish I could just, like, hang out with a cat and just, like, get a PhD out yeah. of it, but <laughs> unfortunately not. No, no. But, you know, it sounds like you'll be doing some some very well-needed research, so. Yeah, I hope so. I get, <laughs> I'm, like, terrified of, um, Tufts finding it. Yeah. <laughs> oh. They're gonna have a field day. Like, my, the guy who said that he wasn't sure if I could do, like, the modeling study, um because he was like chairing the meeting it was like my two supervisors and him during the interview Mm -hmm. and like i know him from my undergraduate from like the sexual health module i did and he literally like in the interview was like so 
how do you think you would deal with um, kind of the media coverage around trans people at the wow. moment? And like, if they picked up your PhD project? And I was like, oh, that's so horrible. Oh, you even have to think about that. I know. And he was like, I'm sorry that I have to like consider this because basically that interview for people who've never done like the PhD process and stuff before, it's basically so they can like talk through your proposal with you and kind of what you want to do in the future and like basically make sure that you can physically do a PhD because obviously they don't want to like have someone going into a PhD that they think wouldn't be able to do it and they like really struggle with it and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, of course. Um, so I think that's why he was asking. So I, he could make sure like if it did happen that I would be okay. And I was literally just there like, I think I'm numb to it at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I think I'm so, like I see it so often that I don't know how much it would phase me, which is like so sad that you have to like yeah. say something like that. But like, it's insane. Yeah, well, hopefully they don't do anything. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> they haven't found our podcast yet, so it's fine. Yes, that is good. Fingers crossed it stays that way. You know, like... I was gonna say, like, sometimes I kind of wish we could just do an episode, like, debunking all of it, but then I'm like, nah, no, actually, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to think about it. Yeah, totally. Especially with all the, like, stuff that's going on at the moment, like, it's nice to have, a like, a positive sex podcast rather than it being negative. Yeah, totally. I feel like that is, and, like, part of why we wanted to start this as well was, like, talking about things that it either related to trans people or not just related to sex. And like in a way that is more inclusive and like not transphobic, like, mm -hmm. yeah. And also in a way where it's like, because trans people will do like entirely normal things and then people label it as like fetishistic. That's such a hard word to say. <laughs> um, but purely just because like someone's trans. Yeah. Whereas like if someone, um, I don't know, like dresses in a really like gender affirmative way, like if a trans woman like wears like lingerie and like she does like her makeup and stuff for like a sexual experience, they would call that like being like fetish-y. I'm just gonna say fetish-y because yeah. that's easier to say. But then it's like you could also easily say that cis people do the exact same thing. Cis people engage in gender affirming practices as well, but yeah. because they're deemed quote-unquote normal, then it's not seen as like abnormal and like not seen as a fetish. So yeah. it's like... I just want to make the point with the podcast where it's like a lot of trans people do the exact same thing, like things that cis people do. And it's not inherently something that you should be like pathologizing or yeah. whatever. Yeah. I was like, I was just talking about this the other day of like, um, like cis people doing gender affirming things, like even things like, mm -hmm. um, like a lot of plastic surgery will be you know to make people quote yeah. more attractive but a lot of the times that is like based around the ideal sort of masculine or feminine mm -hmm. sort of like face and so it's like if you're trying to be more like the feminine ideal or the masculine ideal you know that is kind of gender affirming or even like i don't know there's so many different things that like we don't think of as gender affirming because you know they only want trans people to have to affirm that, whereas with cis people, they just believe you about your gender. But it's like, yeah, exactly. yeah it's really interesting. That's why, like, all of this stuff, like, whenever people start going off about trans people doing the exact same stuff that cis people do, I just, I can't help but laugh. Because I'm just <laughs> like, how are you so just, like, especially with kind of tough things, like, how are you so in this kind of culty way of thinking that you can't even like see the hypocrisy of like yeah. what you're saying yeah totally or you're just like it's okay if i do it but not when trans people do it and it's like okay yeah yeah totally we love 
I love how this just kind of turned into a rant. I know. Like, we'll we, need, listen, yeah. we need more content. Yeah, for sure. We can stop talking about turfs now. No one needs to hear that. <laughs> yep. That grows. <laughs> It'd be cool if we did more conversationally, like yeah. conversation topics. I think it would be really good if we, like we said earlier, because we really, really want to do a Q&A yes. episode, but <laughs> no one ever sends us questions. <laughs> um, so I think like doing like a Q&A question would be really cool because yeah. it's like, we wouldn't do this, I don't think, but um, the Dildorks, they do a really good one every year for 420, where it's basically just like them getting high and answering <laughs> questions. And it's like, a, like they ask each other like quite like personal questions mm. and it's really funny. Yeah. Oh, that's um, fun. Yeah. So like, I would love to do that, but also <laughs> I don't need that on camera. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> but yeah, I think a Q and A would be really good. So we'll try to yeah. we'll get the word out. We'll push for it. We'll like post on social media or something. Try to get people's questions. Um, I think we just need to be really annoying about it. I think so too. And like any questions, very much on yeah, media. sexual health questions, personal questions, every like everything. So gender questions. Yeah, whatever. totally. I think that'd be good. So watch this space. <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. It's more sciencey than we usually get into, so let us know what you think of it. We really appreciate your feedback. As we mentioned, um, I've got a busy few weeks, but we will be back with another episode in kind of mid to late May. In the meantime, uh, why not catch up on episodes you may have missed or maybe check out the blog posts that Dan's been writing. Um, I think they're amazing, so you should definitely check them out. Um, And we'll link everything in the description below as well as, you know, Instagram, Twitter. As always, we are Gender FCK Pod. Um, And yeah, hope you have a nice few weeks and thank you again for listening.